It's time for another edition of Family Life Today, presented by Power to Change, known in America as Family Life. Welcome. We trust you'll find today's program interesting and hope it will be a great encouragement to you and your own family situation. So let's join our presenters, Dave and Ann Wilson. Okay, here's a question for you. I guarantee you don't know the answer to this. Oh, I, then why do you ask me the question? I just found this out, and I thought it would be fun to see if anybody knows the answer to this. How many thoughts do you think you have a day? Every person. I have no idea. Between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts a day. Wow. Yeah. That's, some a, ways that's quite think, a span, you know, 12,000 and 60. Well, I'm just quoting from a book that we got the author sitting over okay. here, so we'll find out in okay. a second if that's even accurate. But here's... Here's what's really fascinating. 80% of those thoughts are negative. Oh. And 95% are repeated thoughts from the day before that are negative. Oh, that can be so true. That was my life growing up right there. Today we're going to help. I think we're going to help people. Me too. Including you and me. Like, how do we manage the thoughts? If it's that much negative, that's really bad. But we've got the author of the book that had those stats about thoughts in here today. Noe Garcia is with us. Welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks so much for having me. And you're married for 12 years. That's right. You have four kids, and you're a pastor. That's right. And you've written a book. Yeah. Yeah, the book is called Repurposed, How God Turns Your Mess Into His Message. And your story is pretty incredible. So why don't we start there? Tell our listeners the Noe Garcia story. You know, my dad is from Mexico. Uh, My mom is from Houston. They both come from really broken homes. Uh, Both of them experience a lot of abuse in their household, uh, emotional, physical abuse. They both met each other trying to escape their homes. And so ninth grade, my father left his home. My mother was in eighth grade. They ran away together, had their first child at 16. Wow. I was the third child, 20, 21 years old. And so I grew up in this household that even though my father uh, was trying to escape what he grew up in, he was still a product of it. And so I grew up in a household where he was on drugs. He was drunk all the time. And I, I would see him beat my mother just about every single day. Hmm. You know, one of the, the most memories that just kind of just overshadow uh, my thought process about who he is. I don't have a relationship with him till this day. But I remember I was a kid and we were having a huge party at the house and and the cops come in and kick the door down, about 15 officers. And my dad runs and jumps uh, the, the back fence and takes off. And my mother's arrested at this point and there's drugs everywhere mm. and there's guns and there's alcohol. Everyone's drunk. I don't know, 15 or so people get arrested. Shortly after that, we go back to our home and my father gets home, beats my mother, and then he passes out drunk. My mother gets money Uh, Out of his pocket, calls a taxi, and we leave. And that was pretty much it. Um, How old were you when you left with your mom? About five. Were you sad about leaving your dad, or did you feel like, I need to get out of here? I was confused. Hmm. You know, whenever you live in dysfunction, it becomes your normal way of functioning. Hmm. And you don't recognize it's dysfunction. And so it was my normal way to function. After time, you feel the emotions, but they become normal. Being scared is just a normal thing. Hmm. Being terrified, being confused, those are normal emotions. And drugs, alcohol, that was normal, everyday kind of thing for you. It's normal. It'd be funny if my dad passed me the beer and I took a drink in front of his friends at five years old and they'd all laugh. And and then I felt happy because they I was affirmed. Hmm. I look at it now from this seat and I couldn't fathom that for my kids. Right. But then that was normal. So five years old, my mom's now a single mom. 
and trying to do the best that she can. But the truth is she was overwhelmed. My father wasn't in the picture, didn't help her financially. She became the one who began drinking a lot. During this time, she would drop us off at random family members' homes for the weekend. Mm. She was hurting. She didn't have Jesus. She didn't know. It was one of these drop-off times, about seven years old or so, where I was molested. And about seven years old, you don't really understand why that took place. You, you don't know if it's your fault, if you did something wrong. You feel ashamed and, and dirty and disgusted and your identity and your dignity is just stolen from you at that age without you realizing what just took place. And you're broken and there's anger that builds up and there's this deep, dark secret that's just suffocating me hmm. that I didn't know who to tell this to. I began to find outlets to deal with this pain, the pain of not having a father. Why did my father leave me? He was supposed to be my protector. Why did my family member molest me? Why did my mom not pick me up? Why did... And all these things are going through, and you don't know how to deal with this. And so I began to get involved in petty crime, joined a little bitty gang that would take me in, started stealing stuff from cars, from homes, just things like that. You know, by eighth grade, I was already using drugs, involved in sexual morality, drinking. I was doing whatever was put in front of me. Ninth grade, same thing. And it was just a downward spiral from here. Eighteen years old, I was done and I was tired. At 18, I was tired of making bad decisions. I I felt disgusted with that I had this deep, dark secret of molestation at this point. Is this a secret nobody knew? Nobody knows. Hmm. And where was God? Anywhere in the picture? Nowhere. Yeah. So I thought. Hmm. I sit outside. At this point, I'm in Houston, make some poor decisions. Someone threatens to shoot me and take my life. So I moved to College Station just to get away from this. I'm supposed to go play basketball at East Texas Baptist University, but instead I run from getting my life taken, go to College Station, and I become more disgusted with my life, more drugs, more morality, more drinking. I just feel like a loser, and I feel like I have become my father. Hmm. The very thing I despised, I'd become. I sit in the backyard. I, I was, if it's okay that I say, I, I was drunk and high. <laughs> just got to be transparent. I was lost, and I was broken. I sit in the backyard and I ask God for a sign. I just say, if you love me, would you please give me a sign? Please give me something. I have nothing. I asked him for a shooting star. I know it sounds so stupid, but I think when you're so desperate, you just grasp for anything. So no shooting star. I go inside and think he doesn't want me. He doesn't love me. I'm too dirty. Mm-hmm. And so I attempt suicide. And my friend comes in and finds me in the room. That was a wake-up call for me. Long story short, I give my life to Christ through a basketball ministry. Was this right after the suicide attempt? About two months later. Oh, yeah. Are you still 18? I'm still 18. And I surrendered my life to Christ. And then it was like cold turkey, night and day difference. I I just lost the taste for sin in in those areas of my life. So you end up, I mean, you're, you're at college now. Right. At this point, I end up going to East Texas Baptist University so a year later there. than I was supposed to, but I went. Oh, so you ended up going back, playing basketball. And I played basketball. And one of the things I found interesting in your book, which I, it was interesting, but also somewhat not ex- unexpected, is how you were judged by your college teammates and college students at, at the campus. You go there thinking, it's Christian University, I'm going to get grace, and you got judgment. Yeah, I love East Texas Baptist University, so I don't want to say East Texas Baptist is like that, but it was that season and maybe the the friend group or the people group I was around. I just don't think they knew what to do with my culture. 
Mm. There was a certain culture, and it's like you leave your culture at the door, and you got to fit into our culture, yeah. mm. which means you got to talk a certain way, look a certain way, and dress a certain way, and have a certain understanding about what church is. I didn't even know how to fake it. Yeah. And so I come in, and I have tattoos, and I have, you know, I, I, I was dressing differently, and I had all these piercings. I was just a different dude, and I was trying to figure out how do I bring my inner city culture and who I am uh, as a young Latin man into this new culture. How does it coexist? And I thought it didn't. And so I faked it for a lot, a lot of times. I faked it. I left my culture at the door. And yet you got to a point, at least if I'm remembering what I read, that you decided I'm leaving the university I just don't fit here. I can't play the game anymore. It's time to move on. Yeah. And and here's the thing. Like nobody, I don't think, intentionally forced that on me. Yeah. Nobody was saying you got to change who you are. Nobody did that. You felt it, though. Yeah. Yeah, I felt it. And some of it comes from insecurity of mm. being a new Christian. There's all this baggage stuff. And, and man, it was hard because I, I'd sit around these tables. And I hope my son is like this one day. But it was challenging when nine out of the ten kids, and I was the tenth one, had saved their self for marriage. Mm. And I just felt like I was so – like I was – too dirty and i couldn't have an awesome story like theirs and Mm -hmm. i couldn't which i hope my son has more of a story like theirs than mine today i really do i don't want him to walk through the pain that i did but i didn't know how to fit into that so i was sick of it so you were leaving i mean i packed up my car but you didn't leave but i didn't leave i packed up my car when my basketball teammates came out and he started sharing his heart with me thanking me as if i was leaving for how i've impacted his life and we were the same culture. Hmm. He understood me. I understood him. And so he thanked me. And I knew how he felt about the rest of the culture. He felt isolated. But he was a basketball star. Hmm. Uh, his name is um, Ced Isom. Cedric Isom came out. He gave me a chain with scripture on it. It's like, you've impacted my life. And started sharing his heart. And the light bulb went on. And it's like God said, you don't have to leave your culture at the door. I'm going to use your brokenness and i'm going to use your past and i'm going to use your culture i'm going to use everything for your good and for my glory and i thought it's okay if i'm different it's okay if i don't understand tradition god has a plan specifically designed for me is that where you came up with the idea repurposed it's like sort of your life now has a repurpose absolutely (laughs) man it's like he said i'm going to take all of this see god is an originator Right. He writes original stuff. And I came into college thinking that I had to imitate what he's already written. Somebody else's life story. And he's the great editor and he is the great author. And so, yes, it was me fully surrendering the pen of my life for him to be the author of it. I didn't know what it was going to look like and I didn't know how it was going to be written. But I knew that he could write a better story than I could. Mm. One of the things I think, I don't know if you thought this. I think about the guy, what's his name again, that spoke those words to you? Cedric Eistham. Cedric. It just hit me, even when I read it, how important our words are to somebody in a moment that, I mean, I don't think he knew in that moment, this is going to change your life, but he spoke life, Proverbs eighteen twenty one. That's right. Your tongue can speak life or death. He sees something. In fact, we started the program talking about negative thoughts. I'm sure you lived your whole life with him, and here's a guy telling you something that you've never thought was true about you, that you're making a difference in my life. And you're sitting here today because of, in some ways, because of that moment. Because of that moment. I just thought how important it is for us to be, to seize those moments in our family, in our our marriage, in a stranger's life, in a friend's life, 
don't miss that chance to say, I don't know if you know this, but you are valuable. Yeah. I don't want to beat this one too much, but I'm thinking if I'm a dad listening right now, there's probably a son or daughter in my house that may need me or a mom Yeah, to say, I see you. Yeah. I care about, I mean, you didn't have that your whole life. I didn't have that. Never had a dad say that to me really my entire life. So I was like you going everywhere to find it through sports, through music, through whatever. And we are dads and moms that can speak that to our kids because they're going to go looking for it somewhere else too unless we speak it. And I would add too, Dave, I think that as we grow up, like our kids grew up in a Christian home, but we didn't. And we have these perceptions of what Christians should look like. I did that. Like, yeah. I had no idea. Like, no this idea. Uh, this is a whole new world. But I, I think that we need to remind our kids, like, God's not a cookie-cutter God. That's right. Mm. He's a God that creates uniqueness. He creates gifts and talents and passions that are all so different. And to remind our kids, like, it doesn't have to look a certain way. Like, right. we're all so different. And to, as you said, Dave, to, to speak out and to bring forth the things that we see in our kids that are so unique that they might think, I'm so messed up. Like, I don't look like everybody else. I'm not acting like everybody else in terms of the culture. But I think that's important. Yeah. So how'd you get from there to now you're a pastor? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's a journey, obviously, from yeah. there. It looks like this is the guy that's never going to end up doing what you're doing. I think that moment was a key moment, um, someone speaking life into me, because up to that point, it really didn't happen. And so for him to allow me to see something in myself that I couldn't see, and I think that was a God moment. Still, after that, I thought, I'm going to get my education, and I'm going to impact people's lives through sports, because I can talk sports with people. And that's how I can share Jesus in sports. But I graduate from East Texas Baptist, and I can't find a job. I have a job interview I get stood up. The guy doesn't meet me there. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm about to graduate and I don't have a job. I have all this debt. And I get a call from a church called Second Baptist Church in Houston. I've never heard of it. And it's a huge church. And they call and they say, hey, do you want to be a um, college and sports intern for the summer? And I say, sure, but just until I find a real job. (laughs) And so I get there and I'm doing the things that I love, you know, pouring into college students and using basketball and football to reach people for Jesus. You're just dunking over these kids, aren't you? Oh, man, it was awesome. <laughs> I was still in tip-top shape. Absolutely. I was talking trash the Christian way this time, <laughs> but it was great. And then by the end of that summer, God had made it very clear, I'm calling you to do this. Hmm. And so I gave it my all. I was all in. But at this point, I thought, okay, I'm a sports pastor. It's not a real pastor position. <laughs> This makes sense for me. This is our life, too, because we kind of made a deal with each other. This sports ministry thing is cool. Let's not get into the pastor. Yes. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, but even this point, I'm thinking, all right, this is my culture here, sports. Right. I have too much baggage to be a real pastor. Yeah. That's for the other kids who yeah. save themselves from marriage. The and good grew people. Up. That's for the good people. I'm the one who's scarred and jacked up. I'm on the courts. This is where I belong. So even then, I was feeling like this is the rest of my life because this is what I... And I'm not saying that it's, you know, below being a pastor, but that's what I thought. This is it. Then he kept opening up doors more and more. Uh, One of the pastors came to me and said, hey, you're really green, which I was. I got saved at 18. Didn't even start reading my Bible until like 22. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was supposed to. Mm -hmm. I was never discipled. He said, you're really green. We think you should go to seminary. And so I trusted him. And so I went to seminary in San Francisco, just on faith, picked up, went there. And, man, I I was cleaning toilets. I was working three jobs. I was a parking lot attendant. 
I get married and meet my wife. I met her in August at my birthday party, proposed in January, married in March, pregnant in June. Boom. Oh. Seriously? Seriously. Hey, you don't mess around, huh? No, I'm, I'm a man of obedience. I believe, <laughs> you know, I believe delayed obedience is disobedience. And so um, I knew this was this was my wife. And so here we are, and I'm working as a parking lot attendant and going to school full time, and I'm cleaning toilets. And, man, I'll never forget, I come from this huge mega church where I felt like my, quote, unquote, career was going up in ministry. I felt I was going to be somebody finally. God calls me to go to seminary, and I'm back to this. It's making no sense. And I'm cleaning toilets one one midnight and I sit down and I'm angry. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to clean this. I'm just going to do it halfway and leave and say I did it. And I'm in seminary at this point, but I'm angry. Like, what am I doing with my life? I sit down. I'm like, why did you call me here, God? And I'm just complaining. I felt like he was telling me that he was before I was going to walk into my calling. He had to fix my character. Hmm. And I felt like he was saying, I want you to clean this as if you're serving me. And I want you to do this with faithfulness as if it's for me. And I thought, yes, sir. Hmm. So I got up and I cleaned the toilets the best that I could. (laughs) And I was just faithful the best that I could be to him. And then um, from there, I went to Nashville after I graduated seminary. Then went to Arkansas, which I thought when I got to Arkansas, I was going to be a lifelong college pastor. I was a college pastor. I was doing chaplain work for the Razorback teams, football team, you know, all kinds of stuff. Baseball, got close with Jimmy Dykes, who was a basketball coach there for the women, did their stuff. And so from there, I was a college pastor, thought I'm doing this the rest of my life. From being a college pastor, called to be a senior pastor. And so I think I've always lived my life where the suitcase has always been open. The bags have always been unpacked. But the suitcase has remained open to say, I am yours. This life is not mine. I'll do whatever you want, even when it doesn't make sense. Hmm. It's kind of how I've lived. Is that what you would say is the lesson of your life? I mean, you've been talking this whole time, this story. And as as an outsider looking, you can see God at every point. I know you couldn't in in you the moment. Can't then, yeah. And now you look back from the suicide attempt and a friend shows up in the room. I mean, even that That was your shooting star. Wow. There's your shooting star. Wow. You're leaving the university. Cedric shows up. I mean. I didn't think about that. It's just, you haven't thought about that? It's just like, it's so apparent that God showed up in the the people that he put around you. Mm -hmm. And here you are. I mean, is that the lesson? Yeah. You know, I come across a lot of Christians today that say, I feel like God has called me to do this. But they give God these parameters. Yeah. It's only going to be in Texas, God. It's only going to be in this city. And here's what I want to do. And then they're frustrated because, like, I don't hear God's not doing it. I'm always thinking, what if you take the lid off? What if you live like your life is not actually yours? And you say, I will go and do whatever you want me to do. And I will go wherever you want me to go. But I think we put parameters of comfort on God. We want to be comfortable in our calling. We don't want to do something that actually makes us have faith. We want a safe plan B of comfort. Work within here so I'm comfortable, God. It was None of this was easy. Hmm. It's not easy being a nomad. Hmm. It's not easy having no friends and being lonely. This is not easy having to pick up and start a new life. We live in five cities. It's not fun. But my life is not my own. Because when it was, it led me to a suicide attempt. Hmm. 
And so I live like that, and I would I would die like that. Yeah, because my life is his. I think we try to live so safe. I know I've done it, and I, I can remember early in my Christian walk, sitting in church and hearing somebody give this amazing testimony up on stage, and thinking, "I want that." Yeah. And then it hit me: I'll never have that if I won't risk. That's right. That story I just heard, the guy took a risk. That woman took a risk, and God showed up, and they have this story. And I'm like, no, nah, I just want to hear stories from others. And it's like, no, don't you want to be this story? That's right. And you're going to have to take a risk. I mean, your whole life is a, a life of risk. Yeah. And, Dave, that's our story. That's the story of surrender, yeah. of God, we give you everything. We'll go anywhere. We'll do anything, whatever you call. And I think for our listeners to ask that question, have you said that to God? I'll do anything and go anywhere for you. Or maybe some haven't surrendered their lives to Jesus. Yeah. This could be your day that you give him everything. It's like our souls are craving surrendering. Mm. Yeah. That's they're made to surrender. They're made to. And that's when the intimacy in yeah. those moments with God cannot be found in a book or in anything else. Those moments of surrender can't be substituted. thank Dave and Ann Wilson and their team for another edition of Family Life Today. Although our programs are produced in America, the issues facing families like forgiveness, communication and taking care of our kids transcend national borders. These issues profoundly affect relationships everywhere. In Australia, family life is known as power to change and our mission is to effectively develop godly families. The kind of families that change the world one home at a time. A key part of our mission includes strengthening marriages and families all around the world. We want to do whatever we can to bring timeless truths to the challenges you face as you seek to strengthen your family and join us in changing the world. We hope you've been encouraged by what you've heard and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at radio at powertochange.org.au. Our website is families.powertochange.org.au where you can check out articles and many other resources on marriage and family well-being. Until tomorrow at the same time, God's richest blessings on your family. Music.